Hello, and uh, welcome to tonight's podcast. We just wanted to put a disclaimer up. The track cuts off abruptly because I have inferior technological skills, and somehow the recording software on my new laptop doesn't want to work properly. Uh, But we figured the episode was good enough to keep airing, and just be warned in the end that it kind of is abrupt. And it's still pretty fun. So without further ado, here's the podcast. And hello, welcome to episode 17, episode 17, 17 redo of uh, Die Hard on a podcast where today we're going to discuss Fellini's masterpiece, um, Eight and a Half, and the Lou Ferrigno, maybe not so much masterpiece, Instant Death, or as we like to re-term it, Instant Regret. Instant Regret. And I'm pretty sure... Yeah, I mean, this is say uh, this is a redo in the episode, and I don't know if any podcast will ever devote more than like two episodes to instant death than we will. So uh... yeah, that's true. We're gonna actually <laughs> put like a whole hour towards instant death. So I think we're probably gonna be the only people in history that do that. Um, I, anytime I look up anything on instant regret, it's like there's one one random review. It says it might be the worst movie ever of 2017. <laughs> <laughs> Which I I wish I could say no. This movie of 2017 <laughs> was way worse, but I really, I mean, nothing's yeah. coming to mind. I mean, it's bad. I don't know if it's, I don't know, it's, I, I feel bad for it, so <laughs> I don't know what to call it, the worst movie Like, ever. yeah, you know, another movie that would be good and, and relating to our Die Hard on a podcast was, it, it should be called, like, Try Hard, because it does try <laughs> really hard. Um, to it do does something. I'm not sure exactly what it's trying really hard to do, but it is trying really hard. I love it. I would say, <laughs> <laughs> love them. And, uh, and like, and we thought we'd mix it with uh, eight and a half because eight and a half is a really, um, probably the best art film I've seen. Uh, and like I brought it up before, uh, is that I really loved how. The whole time Fellini's giving you this sort of existential symbolic thing, you actually don't get lost in what he's trying to say, um, which with yeah. most art films, when I watch them, I'm like, like, what is this guy trying to tell me? He's just presenting random images to me and they don't yeah. make any sense. But like the whole time you're watching eight and a half, you actually know what he's getting at. Uh, and I think that's what really separates it from a lot of the other art films that I've seen. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's, 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 you're on, understanding what's going on but then since we've had since we have had had time like two weeks on this i'm watching the commentary now right and like there's a lot more stuff going on which i'm catching like i'm not catch i didn't catch and i wouldn't have gotten but without even without the commentary you're still catching it which is good like a lot of some 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 films you have to like know what's going on like you have to like do research basically to know right. what the movie's about like for example in um in the seventh seal how Ingmar Bergman, you know, he's playing chess with death and you realize that like, you know, I knew when I watched it, I knew that this was all sort of like a big symbol for life and the struggles of man with his mortality. But like, I never would have known that if I hadn't read that that was what it was about before I went into the movie. You know, if I had just gone into the movie, I'd have been like, okay, like what's going on here? You know? Yeah. Whereas with, go ahead. Sorry. Like Bergman stuff is kind of like that. Like a lot of stuff is going on. You like, I don't know what's happening, and some of it's good. I get 
if anybody listens that went to school with me, like I'm, I'll, sh- I'll get shit for like saying Bergman like <laughs> is a little denser. Like, right? I don't like Bergman as much as I should, but I mean, I I get some of them. I don't get some of them. I'm fine with that. Like, but uh, some are easier than others, and you know, it's, it's the way. Yeah. Any, some of some of his movies I get, some I don't. I'm fine with that. But. Right. Um, but, you know, like, but with this, the whole time I was watching it, with Eight and a Half, the whole time I watched it, I was like, okay, like, I understand that this is all kind of a symbol for his struggle as a director uh, to make mm. the movie that I'm watching. You know, like, I, I, I got that right away whenever the artist, or I'm not the artist, but the writer comes out and, and kind of just starts shitting on the whole dream sequence that you just saw. Like, I thought that was great because, you know, like, it was a real good way to make you realize, like, hey, he's actually talking about the movie that you're watching. And he's explaining through kind of symbols why it's so hard for him as a director to make this movie. Yeah, he had a lot of problems like making the film and like getting the movie like started and like he had troubles throughout the movie. So yeah, it's like it's really weird, like inter- interesting to see like the movie, or basically the movie being made type of thing off screen, but it's also going on like he's putting everything he's experiencing off screen on screen like that like at that moment almost yeah yeah it's almost like a like a mirror of... looking itself like it just keeps kind of you're like wait is this what he's trying to say off screen or on screen and then you realize well to him it's the same thing it doesn't matter because all that really matters is what you're seeing yeah um well listening to the commentary they, they kept bringing up this one thing which is very cool i thought it was cool uh they kept calling it the beautiful confusion which is what I think the original title was they were calling it. Yeah. It's because like because you see the past, the present, and then they didn't say the future but like but like called it. But like it's not the future but like what's going to happen. Like all of it happening at once. So you're not quite sure what's a dream, what's flashback, what's happening. It's like type of right. stuff. Very very fun to watch it. And just like you 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 each scene you're like, was well, this actually happening? Is this in his mind is this a sequence is this how he thinks his childhood was is, is this really what it was like right so but i mean and also it kind of brings up the point that it doesn't really matter what if it's in the yeah. future or if it's in the past or if it's in the present because at the in the end all that really matters is what co- what goes up on the screen you know yeah yeah it's all information that informs the movie itself so it doesn't matter how it comes at you right, right. it's kind of what i'm saying too it's like and in contrast to that, Lou Ferrigno comes back after being a like generic assassin, and I still even even three weeks later I'm still not sure like where he was an assassin for whether it was MI5 or the CIA it was like just like some random camo dude, and um, yeah, yeah there's, some, there's a there's a guy in camo who Lou Ferrigno calls constantly, and actually, did you notice that? The camo guy like turned basically was like turned on him, right? At some point, do you remember that? Um. Well, the one camo guy turns on him and says that you know, like this guy needs to be stopped. We don't know, like, guess he's killing a bunch of gangsters, but we don't know if he's going to stop there because he's a killing machine. Mm. And then the other guy was like, "Well, I'm going to like act like I'm containing him, but then I'm going to give him the keys to the handcuffs." Okay. Because yeah, because I was I was confused by the old guy who like, I think like halfway through like almost like sells him out to the bad guy. 
Yeah. But the psycho- his psychologist then- is the one that saves him ultimately in the end and gives him to the handcuffs, which I found was like kind of weird. Like, you know, this is Lou Ferrigno, the badass killing machine, and mm-hmm. he single-handedly destroys an entire London street gang. And you're trying to tell me he can't pick handcuffs? Like, I can pick handcuffs, you know, and I ain't shit. Like, I never killed anybody, and I can pick handcuffs. Like, you know, all of a sudden, he, like, that's going to be the difference between him escaping or not? Or um, it could be like, uh, have you seen Have you seen Bay of the Furious? Because uh, I, I have not yet. handcuffs at one point, and he's just in them basically to amuse like the police officers around him. Because mm-hmm. then, like, he gets mad and just breaks them <laughs> at one point. The Rock actually breaks the handcuffs. That's pretty sick. Yeah, yes, that's yes, pretty he's sweet. He's I feel like Lou Ferrigno is like, well, if the Rock can do it. I feel like Lou Ferrigno could break break some handcuffs too. Right, for sure. Yeah, I mean, he could at least break handcuffs, or I mean, or pick them. It's like not really that hard. It's kind of like an open secret that it's not really that hard to pick handcuffs. You can do it with like a comb or a bobby pin, like you know, like the bobby pin picking the lock thing that actually will work on handcuffs. Um, but I guess I guess we're gonna kind of try and suspend disbelief a lot when, because we are at the end of the day talking about Lou Ferrigno killing a London street gang single handedly with with only punches to the chest and usually punches to the face yeah <laughs> slow slow punches <laughs> to the chest and slow punches to the face um and i, I enjoyed i enjoyed the fact that they, they they didn't speed up anything they didn't try to like, even speed up like the action it was just like yeah they didn't like, they didn't time. like drop it down to like 18 <laughs> frames a second or something to make it look faster or any of the old tricks um and, and like you said it before i can't remember what movie you were referencing but i was talking about how brutal and graphic the actual rape scene and the murder of the child was and you brought up mm, yeah, a movie yeah. that was that was similar to that. Irreversible, which is like, it's like a, a movie shot and then like and like shown in reverse, basically. Like so, it's, but it's in ten minute chunks, right? There's a ten like basically, I think it might be even a bit longer chunks, but like there's one sequence where this girl gets raped and it's like, like real time. It's like the most brutal thing. Oh wow, it's a brutal movie too. It's it's a good movie, but it's it's pretty brutal. I'll have to I'll have to look that up. Um. But yeah, like whenever I was watching this, I was watching it with a group of people and everybody was just like, oh my God, this is disgusting. And I was like, yeah, it really is. It's really freaking awful. And I was like, but on the bright side, we know Lou's going to kill this guy. We know Lou's going to get him. Well, because they're they're raping her in one room and like the main bad guy goes off to another room a few times, comes back and forth and they're still like raping her. Yeah. Are you you sure you're not done yet? Yeah, like really? (laughs) Yeah, and then he like, and I didn't think he was gonna kill the little girl, and then he then he kills her. I was like, oh, he's not gonna kill her. He's just gonna scare her really bad. So she's like, oh, grandpa, he's terrible. And then she, he actually kills her, and then just blinds the the mom. And I was like, wow, that's really diabolical. <laughs> and you know, all Lou Ferrigno did was walk in on a murder and then kill two of his guys. It's like it's not like he it was that bad. I mean, the guy was a gangster. I enjoy the fact that he didn't mention any of that. Like once he got into the, the apartment, he's just like, "Oh, this just happened down here. It's it's cool." Yeah, it's fine. I'll, I'll just stay the night and have breakfast with you, and it's it's fine. I won't worry about these these gangsters there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like he didn't he didn't <laughs> in, say in anything about it. Like he was like, "Well, on the way over here, I just happened to kill these two gangsters who were murdering somebody." Like no, nothing like that. He didn't have to, but of course that was that was him. He was the freaking psychotic killer, so he wouldn't think. He wouldn't no. think of anything of just murdering two freaking thugs. He's like, all in the day. All in a day. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like some breakfast, honey? Yeah. 
I'd like to get back to uh, eight and a half a little too. Like I, I was really excited that I <laughs> How actually, dare you? I actually watched. I know, right? After we're talking about freaking instant death, which is the best movie of 2017 easily. Yes. Um, and we, which is why I had to bring it up whenever we were talking about what movie we were going to watch. I was like, dude, you've got to see this movie. It's definitely on the so horrible. It's good list. Like there's no way around it. Um, but eight and a half, on the other hand, like I, I've kind of watched people who have been influenced by Fellini, but this is the first time I've actually watched him, and um, I was really impressed with what he was able to accomplish uh, with his. I, I, I'm gonna have to watch more of his movies because it was really fun to just sort of watch somebody do do something just for the sake of doing it. You know, like anymore, it seems like movies either have like no point at all or so much of a point that it's annoying. And it seemed like Fellini kind of got in the middle of that really well. Yeah, like this was a turning point for him in his career because he was doing a bunch of like neo-realistic films up to this point, and he kind of wasn't like he wasn't into it anymore. So like he he wanted to kind of like experiment and go off and do his own thing and do like this more like magical realism type of stuff. Right. This is basically this this start of later Fellini type of stuff where he just kind of goes a little crazy with like his his dreams and stuff like that right like almost I mean, like like have you ever seen um kurosawa's dreams which is just like it doesn't yeah, even seem like dreams. he's trying to do anything <laughs> he's just like hey let's make stuff look cool you know this is like like 10 short films or something basically right all that. just packed into one which i i don't know i mean like i liked it i thought it looked amazing but as far as you knew like an like a whole hour and a half it was like dude like i mean get a point you know like there's a couple. Of, there's a couple of sections that are really good, and a couple of sections that are kind of like, nah. Yeah. I mean, come on, Scorsese is Van Gogh. I mean, come on. Right. That's <laughs> That's right. Funny. Well, and see, Scorsese's never really fallen into that trap. Like all of his movies, even though they have the symbolism and they have like kind of that art artistic feel in some way, they're they're always grounded in a really concrete story and riveting characters, so that you don't even think about the artistic aspect of it so much until later. You know. Yeah, like he's 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 like a fucking like special animal onto his own because it's like everything he does is like so specific. Even if you think he's making a mistake, it's on purpose. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, so according to him, which I don't know why he would not, but like everything he does, it's like oh, like Wolf of Wall Street. It's like it's edited weirdly, like and you'll notice inconsistencies between edits of the scene because that's how they were feeling at the time. This was about was it's like God damn you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like you know, like editing like quote-unquote mistakes and you're just like i'm doing that on purpose because i can and i want to i was like fuck right or on another extreme side of that is like kubrick who like put all this weird symbolism into his movies and then like never even mentions it you know like the shining like i watched some <laughs> documentary about how like the shining was actually about like you know native americans being genocided or something um and it, mm -hmm. the symbol but the symbolism in all of that whole message is like in the background and you'd never notice it unless somebody told you it was there like, I think that might even be a little too far, too, because it's kind of like, well, if you're putting symbolism in there and your average viewer can't see it unless somebody tells them about it, then it might as well not even be there. Well, that was like, was that the documentary like where everybody had like these crazy theories yes. <laughs> about that? It's really about the moon landing, I think, or something. Yeah, yeah. And then like, it's all about this other crazy <laughs> stuff. But then whenever, and like, I kind of dismissed it, but then I kind of came back to it a little bit whenever I was actually reading about Stephen King. 
and it mm. talked about and Stephen King talked about the reason why he hated The Shining so much was because he said that Stanley Kubrick tried to put all this other stuff in it that wasn't supposed to be in it. Mm, I see. I mean, Stephen King has horrible movie taste, let's be honest. <laughs> That's true. He has great... It's weird, because he has great musical taste, but bad movie taste. Yeah. His like, movie tastes are like, usually the worst. Yeah. <laughs> he yeah. says he likes your movie. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, but it's weird, because I actually just recently, um, I was listening to uh, The Swinging Neckbreakers. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of The Swinging Neckbreakers, but they're this fucking mm. fantastic garage band from the 90s. And when I went to YouTube to watch them, um, they'd gotten all these views. And somebody said, like, why are they getting all these views? And it was like, it, and somebody else wrote, well, it's because Stephen King's like a huge fan of them. And he freaking keeps, <laughs> he keeps plugging them. And I was like, wow, I didn't know Stephen King had such good taste, you know. Um, but you're right, he does yeah, have bad taste in movies. <laughs> yes, he does. Um, although Stand By Me, I guess, was pretty good. I like Stand By Me, um, which was... Yeah, I mean, I... Well, I don't know if he liked it, though. That's the thing. It's like, he has, like, his movies are inconsistent, but, like, his actual tastes are usually, like, the worst. <laughs> right, right. Um, well, and he liked, he liked Stand By Me, and it's only fair, because, like, Stand By Me is the only movie that is pretty much word-for-word word Stephen mm -hmm. King's story, Stand By Me. Like, I mean, there's no, like, there's no difference at all, and very, very few of the movies based on his books are like that, but... Because Stand By Me was a novella, I guess they could get away with it because it was much, much shorter than one of his books, so they didn't have to like cut stuff out of it. I feel like he probably likes. I, I haven't seen anything where he likes, but I feel like he'd like the Shawshank and like the Green Mile. Yeah, like, they're pretty. They're pretty faithful too. Yeah, and both, which which is funny because at least Shawshank is from the same is from yeah. the same book as Stand By Me. Um, and yeah, the Green Mile was also really faithful. I'm not sure his opinions on it, but I, I just remember him talking about how much he hated Kubrick's film. And I was kind of like, you know, The Shining didn't follow the story exactly, but it got the freaking creepiness and the scariness of that book like down better than anybody has ever gotten one of your movies, you know, or one of your books. I mean, I, re I, I listened to the book a, a few years ago like for the first time and like the ending of that is just like it's too much because it's like all these snow uh like they have all this all these like um topiary gardens right and they all come alive and they all come alive and like start attacking them it's like that's not fucking scary at all can yeah and i'm pretty sure the hotel explodes and a demon comes out of it too if i'm not wrong i mean it was a long time ago when i read that book but i mean and the guy's like the, the you know, and the, the the writer is like this huge racist, like alcoholic racist. That's right. Like, that's right. Because the guy, the guy who came up, that's was black, and he was going off and throwing the n word everywhere and freaking out about how, um, how his boy was talking to, you know. I remember. Yeah. I forgot all about that. He was this huge racist. He's racist, and like of course, like and like all that stuff comes, like all the topiary beasts come come around at the end. It's like. I don't know about you, but I think we've always talked about it before. Like our group of people is always like his, Stephen King's endings to books. He doesn't know how to end end books. Yeah, he, he has trouble. I mean, for an example, look at the Dark Tower, which is coming out this this week or coming out soon. You mm. know, I mean, it took him twenty five years to end that series, if not more. Yeah, and it's like, and I haven't read, I haven't read the like, past four books. Okay, so then so. I'll shut up. Because I was about to comment, I was about to comment <laughs> on the end of that. I was about to be like, and the ending sucked because. But no, no, I don't. I don't disagree that I'm, I'm sure. I, I I bet you the ending is not good. And it's like yeah. I wish you could stop reading after a certain point. Or like I mean, the books are so good up to those points, though. It's like you kind of forgive them because it's like well, there's nowhere else to go except right. 
right. band or like it. Well, like and you know, actually, let's. Br- I'd like to bring this back to the the Fellini movie, um, mm-hmm. which is something I love seeing in artists, and I saw it in the Fellini movie, and I see it in a lot of um, Stephen King's writing and some other writers' writing is whenever the characters they create actually get out of the artist's control, and they start mm-hmm. doing things that the characters or like that the artist like didn't originally intend them to do, but like they become compelled to make them do that. Like I feel like. Um, the director and uh, the director and the girl, his uh, his wife. Like I felt like, you know, Fellini didn't actually set out for either the director or his wife to do the things he does. Like whenever in the in the very end, whenever Fellini's director shoots himself, like I feel like he didn't set out for him to have him do that. But as he was creating the movie, it became where like the character actually got out of his control and did that to where that wasn't what he intended for it to happen, but it's what he felt like had to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see that a lot in Stephen King's work where, you know, he'll make this character and you can almost tell that it freaking just swerves right away from like what, what you were reading. And you feel like, you know, like the character almost took on a life of its own and forced mm-hmm. the artist to do that for him, you know? Yeah. It's like a d- adaptation too. Does that like where yeah. <laughs> the last, the last act is just like this, this other movie. Cause it gets yeah. out of control. Yeah, it, it, because yeah, adaptation is a great a great one of those because it, it seems like the twins almost completely took control from the artist and said no, this is what's going to happen, regardless of what you think is going to happen. Um, yeah. And I, I think a lot of great works of art do that too, is where. You know, and yeah, so I think it's really nuts how um, that happens when somebody loses their selves so much into a, a work of art that that it, it gets beyond one individual's ability to create. Mm. Yeah. Um, God, we just fucking, I just lost my train of thought. Um, I know, right? That whole thing kind of <laughs> stacked us a little bit. But, you know, like, I mean, it's like we were saying before, is how whenever you write a script or whenever I write a play, how you put yourself into it. And even if it's like a revenge movie, um, you know, you're still trying to kind of shoot to be like eight and a half to where... You're putting so much into yourself of it into it that it sort of transcends what you're actually trying to do. Yeah, and that's what we're like that's what like I think we talked about before. I don't know if we did we just talk about like <laughs> I don't know where we're, I forget what we talked about because I know right. Did we, just, did we talk about did we talk about our script my script? No, no. We, I was about to move into plug into your script. Um, oh, okay. And oh, Trevor is actually about to shoot a script that he wrote called, <laughs> it was originally called Brotherly Love, Asshole. Um, I told him to change it to yeah. just Asshole because I thought that was funnier. Um, yeah, and uh, apparently you changed the you, you changed the lead character from a man to a woman. Yes, yes, take three. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like inspired by like eight and a half watching like Marcello Mastroianni's struggles, like I basically like almost based the character of like kind of on my own struggle and kind of like did like an eight and a half type of scenario with it. And yeah, so and like I've changed the the main character like we talked about before. I changed a lot of the, the male and female characters around because all I could find was good female actors and like is like as cool as the female actors. So I just like gave them all the good parts and they were just like super stoked. To have this, the chance to kind of just like really get, like get into these like meaty roles that like women aren't usually don't usually get. Yeah, and you know, actually, in my my latest play, 
and I, I may actually have to rewrite it some more, is I actually wrote the, wrote the play to be, like, the, the female in it was the lead, the, the girl in it was the lead, although it, it's not super obvious that she's the lead, like, it, it almost seems like the male's the lead, but it's, it's not really the male, like, for example, he can't shoot anybody, like, every time he actually shoots at a character, he misses, and then she comes in and actually does the job for him, um, but I, I don't know if I don't know if it translates well or not. Like I, that's what I meant to do. Like I might have to actually work on it some more. Um, Is it like the, the cell phone? The cell phone one? Is yes, one? the cell phone one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, you know, and like, and like it, it, it's it it it, it, it kind of follows the man around a lot. But the the story is actually about the girl. Uh, mm -hmm. But I don't know. I I may have to actually make that a little bit more obvious because I wanted to be kind of subtle. But I think it's like too much too subtle, which is. Like getting back to us and um, Fellini versus, say, David Lynch, where you know with Fellini you knew what he was talking about, and for the most part, like a lot of David Lynch's movies, you do know what he's talking about. But then there's some where you're like, "The fuck are you talking about, dude?" <laughs> yeah, 